Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space, add Buzzsprout, and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Barefooting with Sierra. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. In this episode, I interviewed author and illustrator Mark Fearing. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I'll give you updates on what I'm working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. Let's get started. First up, novels. I'm about 10% of the way through my final round of editing, my novel Red 72 Revelation. I think I'm making good progress. There are lots of little things that, while not technically grammatically wrong, read oddly. And my editor, Kaz Moran, has been so helpful in helping me get that final manuscript more reader-friendly. In novel news today, Romance Writers of America released findings of their study on romance novel authors and readers. 82% of romance authors are female, with the age range pretty varied. Romance readers are split surprisingly evenly across genders, but it tends to be younger people reading the genre, with 50% of readers being under the age of 35. 92% 92% of readers prefer to read their romances in print as opposed to ebooks. The ethnicity breakdown of romance readers approximately matches U.S. population percentages, which really goes to show how important representation is in fiction. One in three romance readers is non-white, yet go down the romance aisle at your local mainstream bookstore and tell me how many people of color you see on the covers. If there's even one, I will be amazed. There's been a huge rise in indie romance, focusing on specific target markets for people of color, LGBTQ plus romances, but with so much of the market being left unrepresented, mainstream publishing is really falling short. Alberta-based author Annette Lapointe is releasing her third novel, and this is The Cure. Unlike her other two novels, this one is set in Winnipeg. She lived in Winnipeg for several years and chose to make it the setting for her latest novel because, in her words, I miss it extravagantly. And This is the Cure is the story of a radio host who finds herself re-navigating parenthood, overcoming a troubled past, and confronting a conservative family all in the wake of her ex-husband's murder. And This is the Cure is available at Indigo and Chapters, as well as Amazon. Now on to comics. I did a Groundhog-themed comic today. I've got little baby Paul out there saying, the possum-sized shadow, six more weeks of memes. Now on today's interview with author and illustrator Mark Fearing. Hi Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Uh, Well, uh, thank you for inviting me, Sarah. My name is Mark Fearing. I am an author and an illustrator. 
Uh, I do picture books, a whole lot of picture books. I think about 25 of them now. Uh, I've done independent comics and graphic novels. Uh, Chronicle published a graphic novel called Earthling. I'm currently working on two new graphic novels, uh, a couple new picture books I'm working on, and I work in animation. I'm writing some uh, animated show for Disney. So that's what I'm doing right now. Um, and it keeps me busy and insecure because uh, you feel like you need to always be doing something. So, so that's why I'm always doing something. The imposter syndrome. Like. Yes. Oh God. Yes. Oh yes. I am keep, well keep, familiar with that. Just keep moving. Keep, keep it like Dory there, uh, you know, finding Nemo. Just keep, yeah. Just keep swimming. Yep. Yep. So how did you, how did you get your starts as an illustrator? Good question. I um, did not want to be an illustrator. I wanted to be a writer more than anything. Although back in high school, I wasn't particularly driven to figure things out. Like, it, you know, without the internet, uh, you know, what does a screenplay look like? How do they work? What, what are formats? Uh, that all overwhelmed me. So I ended up uh, going to University of Wisconsin-Madison as a, uh, ended up in spending a long time there. <laughs> I did ancient art history. Actually, for a long time, I thought I was going to be an art history major, but I ended up working in design, graphic design. I worked in Madison, Wisconsin for a few years and various places ended up at a software company doing early, early day one internet design and interactive design. I moved myself to Los Angeles and ultimately ended up working as an art director for Sony Online. So I worked in game shows for about five years of my life on designing games, online jeopardies, Wheel of Fortune. We did a we did a version of, uh, I mean, just almost every game show, Price is Right for Pearson I worked on and the online version, the French version, the German versions. So I was a game show guy <laughs> for a long time. But uh, me, I was always drawing writing. I just, I didn't know how to make a living. It took a while and I ended up quitting that, going to grad school at UCLA for a And really, uh, through all that time, it was um, building, uh, building out my own books, doing independent comics, writing and drawing, just trying to get better. So that's what led me here finally. Very, not a very clear path. <laughs> Sorry, you cut out there for a second. What did you study at UCLA? I uh, went to UCLA for an uh, MFA in animation. Okay. So I went in the film school and the animation department and spent uh, one year in the program. And just as the second year was starting, I took a job at Walt Disney television animation. So I never completed my master's. I, I mas did not get my degree. <laughs> That's okay. You, you've got enough experience that I think you've more than made up for it. Yeah. I, I wish I had though, actually, that's one of those things you look back on. You're like, I should have just finished it. But anyway, yeah. How would you describe your artistic style? Ah, oh, wow. Um, well, I, I love line driven work. I'm not really a painter. Uh, it, I struggle with, I have to work very hard when I color and I paint to get it, to get what I want. It's not natural for me to think in, in sort of, uh, you know, painterly terms. So I'm a line, I'm a line guy. I love drawing with line. Uh, my favorite, a lot of my favorite illustrators are, you know, from that era, 
of the sixties with uh, Steinberg and, you know, uh, I, I think, I've changed my style through the years and I don't really have one particular style. So I was also really influenced by Edward Gorey and I could imitate that pen and ink thing very well. And in fact, I had an offer once to sort of extend that work uh, in that style, but um, that pen and ink look, but I felt it was sort of like it had already been done. I don't know. I probably should have taken it uh, the opportunity, but um, I do like that too. I like almost every style. I can find something I like that has never been my problem. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so how do you come up with new ideas and stay inspired? Oh boy. Um, well, there's the old answer fear. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> the, the good answer is I love, I really love telling stories. I think that's what unites all of my work. Even when I was doing advertising and design, I love narrative, uh, whether it's drawn or in film. Um, I'm really always thinking of stories. I think it's actually something I've talked about this with other writer friends. I think there's something wrong with me sometimes because it, I'm always thinking of a story. Like there's always some scene. It can be a visual. It can be a paragraph. It can be a sentence. It can be a character name. And it sets me off thinking about a story. And I, I, I don't quite know why that is, but that's definitely, there, there's no shortage of ideas. The difficulty in, in my life is finding those ideas that can actually be carried out commercially to make, uh, make pay your mortgage or make your car payment, right? Like there's tons of great ideas, interesting ideas, but it gets narrower, sort of the old Kafka story, you know, it gets narrower to... Um, figure out which of those you can get to an agent or an editor and get paid for if that's your goal. And then that's, doesn't mean they're better. I, you know, I'm, I, most of my favorite work is not, you know, largely published wide work, but um, there is a process there where you take these great inspirations and you figure out if they're, if someone's going to help you bring that to market. That sounds horrible. I don't like that I said that, but that's the truth. (laughs) Yeah, that, that it is the sad truth of of making a living from art is that mm. it has to be marketable. <laughs> yeah, and that process, like I'm working on a picture book with my agent right now. I've done a couple drafts. We had a, you know, and you're trying to figure out there's something in there that really I really love. It's not quite clicking, and I trust my agent a lot on that. And um, I need to figure that out. And that's work. That's really like I spent probably nine hours on Saturday reworking, you know, 650 words of a picture book idea. And it, it doesn't feel that fun at, at some moments, but um, it, I, I know there's a solution in there. <laughs> I'm still finding it. Yeah. One of my, one of my writer friends describes the editing process as walking barefoot over broken glass. Yeah. 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 If, if, and, and maybe you're not even sure what direction you're supposed to go. Yes. There's no end in sight. It's just a field of broken glass. And, uh, but you know, there's a pair of shoes hidden out there somewhere that you you get to find. Yeah. Maybe if you're lucky. (laughs) Yes. So you said that some of your, your favorite projects that you've worked on are ones that you haven't ended up publishing. (laughs) What are 
those favorite projects could you tell us a little bit i I can talk about them a bit and i think more interesting to me i'm always trying to understand why why they motivate me why i feel that way i mean there's plenty of projects i've had published that i love the the great thanksgiving escape is a picture book that i'm very happy with Uh, books i've illustrated for other authors that i'm i'm really happy with i think one of my devices is making noise there um uh, i think this personal stuff the really, really personal stuff sometimes is so uh, internal that it it has a hard time uh, being able to make the commercial jump. And that's sort of contradictory because we want to go inside ourselves. We want something personal that we're sharing, but there is a line where the the personal can, for me at least, doesn't necessarily function uh, for, for the market. I did, I actually put, there's, two or three books I have up on like the Apple ebook store that those are just little short fables that I illustrated. One is called the thing with no head. And the other one is the boy who is swallowed by a tiger. And they're very Edward Gorey esque they're pen and ink and they're maybe 20 pages. And those projects are really fun to do. And, and I have an editor who a friend who edits and spelling and structure to make sure they're right, but there's no, story process editing. I just, it's back to like doing comics when I was 14 years old or 12 years old. I just, I write and I draw it and I figure it out. And when I like it, it's done. And, and so I put those up and, you know, there's a lot of little projects on my hard drive like that, you know, drawings and books. I did some independent comics called Cenozoic years ago too, that were just silly caveman stories that were, you know, just you know, that's something very interesting about graphic novels too, right? Because they started off, I think graphic novels used to be like independent film, like really good independent film. And now to some extent, it's like summer blockbusters. And that's not bad, but along with that change comes, you know, pros and cons. And and that has happened in graphic novels. You start off with that format, I think being, something that was very individual and kind of weird and didn't play by the rules and wasn't always completely satisfying. And you felt you were getting an unedited look at someone else's thinking. And that's when I was, you know, uh, back in the eighties, starting to buy comics and graphic novels. That's what I wanted. I didn't buy for the most part, Marvel or DC. Um, I wanted that, that exposure to another artist's kind of, just throwing that out there. And, and I think uh, that's still satisfying in my own work. That was a really long answer. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's a good answer because yeah, going, going too far into yourself and exposing yourself being raw like that. Like sometimes it's, it's the advice that you get in a lot of low level writing classes is that you need to expose yourself, but there is that line where you need to, to still have that barrier between yourself and the audience, because if it, you go too far, it gets uncomfortable for the reader, for the audience. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, I think, you know, if you, if you look at the Pixar story classes or, you know, the storyboard artists and writers, and you're, you're looking for something that's universal. Ultimately you, you go inside yourself to find that thing that we will all recognize, but there's also a side effect that your obsessions don't necessarily make for fascinating reading by others. 
you know, I don't want my journal. Like I'm, I'm never publishing my journal. I find it infinitely fascinating to read about what was happening last February in my life, but it's, it's on edited. It's, it's not made to be consumed by anybody else. It's, it's serving a different purpose for me. And I think when you take the step to be published or to make a film or to make a TV show, you're trying to take a step to broaden and communicate clearly something. Whereas in my journal or my personal work, sometimes I'm just exposing that. I'm just experiencing something that I, I see or have, and I haven't worked it. I haven't crafted it. So, yeah, it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. It's certainly, I, I don't have the, you know, all the answers to it. For sure. What have you learned over your career of writing and illustrating that you wish you knew when you first started? Oh, that, that I, I am one of those people who thinks about these kind of things every day at like 4 a.m., you know, when I wake up. I thought if you were a good writer or a, or a good illustrator, artist, filmmaker, whatever, it, that it would just, it wouldn't be work. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like I'm a, you know, you get, you get the romanticized version of Hemingway or whoever it is that you, and it sounds like they sit down and they write their novel and it's brilliant and perfect. And when I was young, I struggled to, you know, do, I did comic strips in high school and college and comic books and, you know, you get feedback and reviews. And I thought, geez, I'm, I'm not very good at this because it takes me a lot of work to do anything good. And obviously the people who are good at this don't work that hard or don't have to work. You know what I mean? There's like, it's, it's a, so I think I, that's really why I spent so long, you know, in advertising, in design, in corporate jobs, because I thought, well, I just don't, I'm not, I'm just not that good because it's, I, in order for me to produce something, it's a lot of work. And uh, so that's one thing I would tell myself is if you enjoy doing it, keep doing it and keep working at it and realize that, you know, there's a lot of luck involved and there's just a lot of effort in trying to figure out what it is you're doing. But I really misunderstood that. I really, I thought, oh, if you're a good writer, it's very natural to, to, to write good. You know what I mean? Like I, that should be easier for me if I was good at it. So I'll go do something else, which was very silly and, and wasted some of my life actually with that. So that, that was a mistake. And is there any advice you'd give to someone who's starting out in an artistic career? Yeah. Finish work, get work done, finish, finish it. If you're writing short stories, write your short stories. If you're writing a novel, write a couple novels and then have be open to someone you trust someone to read that and give you feedback and, and ex, it, it be open to the, the feedback and the reviews, be open to the positives and the criticism. You know, it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, being an actor, I can't imagine spending years going into auditions basically. Right. And being, being rejected. And I, I did acting in college and I said that this is not, you know, I can't take that directly every day of my life. Rejection is really hard. And I have a, a friend who's a producer who always says, we, you know, us artists types are exactly the people who, you know, take it the worst. <laughs> and yet it's, it's the fundamental aspect of my life day in and day out is, can you change this? Can you revise this? Can you edit this? This doesn't quite make sense. 
So be open to doing your work, get work done and get feedback and try to understand the issues that, that you're hearing and, and work on that. But I think getting over rejection, some people don't. I mean, I, you know, there's a few writers I've run into who aren't writers uh, professionally because they, they just can't, the, the criticism hits them and they reject it. And, uh, you know, that's fine too. I mean, if it, 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 this goes back to our first issue. Like, do you want to make a living doing this? I, I, for goodness sakes, the best art, a lot of the best artists and writers and illustrators I know are not making a living doing it. That's not the same thing. Doing, uh, writing a great book doesn't mean it will be published and will be a giant hit. Uh, you know, there are certain things a mainstream publisher will buy and they're the things they think they can sell. So, I, you know, be, I, I, I'm very hesitant to say that commercial success is what it's all about. So, so be aware that you might be someone who does this work that you love and that's important and great to an audience. It, it may never be a mainstream project. That, that doesn't mean the work isn't good, you know. Great advice. And what is the best advice that you have ever received? Okay, let's see. Best advice. Um, there's a couple points that stand out. I think one bit of advice, and I I, uh, I was working another job at a entertainment at a studio in LA, and I was doing more or less corporate or a, a executive work, and I was meeting with some writers on projects and I showed them one of my comic books I had written and drawn. And they, these were very successful writers in entertainment. And they looked at the books and, and they looked back at me and they said, what are you doing this job for? You did this? What, what are you doing this job for? Why are you here? And that wasn't really advice, but it sort of shook me up a little bit because I really was doing the job because I was making a living, right? But they uh, they sort of woke me up a bit and uh, and made me rethink why why I was doing that. But I think the other best straightforward advice is, and I've been told this several, you you have to finish the work that you start. Finish where if you're doing a comic strip, if you're writing a comic book, you have to finish it and share it. And that's really the only way you can grow. And uh, it's painful and it will never, for me, it's never as good as what I saw in my head. I always have some great vision, but every time you do that, you take a step forward, you refine your skills, you understand the craft, and more importantly, you can share it with other people and get feedback. And sometimes the feedback is, eh, it's all right. And sometimes it's, I don't like it, or I don't like the way you draw hands, <laughs> right? Or, uh, you know. You're, or you look too much like so and so, and then sometimes it's it's great feedback. And and you know, doing kids books, you you're in kids lit. You're lucky because you get a lot of really wonderful letters from kids and parents for their kids who are like they love this book and it it meant so much to them and they've read it you know five times. That's it sounds kind of sappy and silly, but it's actually really satisfying to to understand that there is someone out there looking and reading and and you know absorbing this thing that you create so another long answer <laughs> it's a great answer though uh, and finally where can listeners find your work 
Well, you can uh, you can find it at bookstores, I, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, my children's lit. Both the ones I've written and illustrated and that I've illustrated are everywhere. Um, my website, markfearing.com, has links to some of my personal projects and a, a cool little three-episode series I made for DreamWorks Online called Book Reports that are basically kids getting book reports wrong in a way. That Those are up there. And um, um, Instagram. So I don't do that much social media posting, but my website has has links to all the books and and as well as some of my independent stuff I put up on Apple eBooks. I haven't done that that much. I've been too busy to do that, but I, I was hoping to maybe every three or four months do a one of my own projects and release it as an eBook, but that has not happened. <laughs> call, call life is is getting in the way of my my dreams once again. Oh, life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on once again. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, Sierra. All right. Next up is journalism. I'm still waiting on those court transcripts so I can get back to working on my true crime book. I do have some other journalism projects that I'm working on that I'll share more about as I have more details. Every day in February, I'm going to highlight one influential black history figure. Today's Black History Month highlight is Crispus Atux, the first person killed in the Boston Massacre. Crispus was born in about 1723 in Framingham, Massachusetts. He was an enslaved person, but managed to escape by 1750. He sometimes went by the alias Michael Johnson to avoid capture. He became a sailor, spending much of his life at sea or working on the docks. He arrived in Boston in March 1770 after a voyage to the Bahamas, to make port before leaving for another trip to North Carolina. On the evening of the 5th of March, 1770, an argument between a British officer and a barber started after the officer refused to pay for services rendered. A crowd of both British soldiers and colonial civilians gathered. The civilians started throwing snowballs at the soldiers. Several men, including Crispus Atux, picked up pieces of wood to use as clubs. Witness accounts differ as to who exactly hit a soldier with the club. Some people say it was Crispus, and others say he was just standing there when one of the other men hit the soldier. Regardless, the soldiers opened fire. Crispus Atux was hit in the chest twice. He was the first of the five colonists killed in the massacre to die. He was buried as a hero at Granary Burying Ground alongside the others. He was approximately 47 years old at the time of his death. In current events today, Deja Taylor, a 17-year-old student at West High School in Iowa City, has invented sutures that will change color if the wound is infected. She spent a year researching her invention and is in the process of getting her work patented. This was her first research project outside of a science class. She entered her research into the Junior Science and Humanities Symposium in March 2020 and was the only black student to do so. Being in the room, knowing stereotypes were flying, and to be able to prove them wrong and win first place was phenomenal, Deja told the Gazette. She then went on to rank in the top 300 scholars this year in the 80th Regeneron Science Talent Search for her color-changing sutures. A total of 1,760 students across the United States enter the competition this year. From the top 300, the Talent Search will choose 40 finalists to receive $25,000 each and compete for a top prize of $250,000 in March. Well done, Deja. This kind of technology is going to help so many people. 
Alberta has extended the quarantine period for people exposed to the South African and United Kingdom COVID variants from 14 days to 24 days. With 50 cases of the UK variant and 7 cases of the South African variant so far identified in the province, 8 of those with no known link to travel, it's important to stop the spread of these hyper-transmissible strains before they get any worse. Four of those eight cases are linked to an outbreak in a daycare. Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's chief medical officer, hopes the new quarantine rules will stop further community spread. The government is still planning to ease restrictions to allow gyms to open by appointment and restaurants to allow dine-in patrons at limited capacity beginning February 8th. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. Another day of quarantine done for me, just five more to go. My barefoot adventures today consisted of checking the mail. Go me. Let's jump into the barefoot news. Matthew Zidabal, a Toronto man who perished trying to save people from a house fire, is being remembered by his neighbors as a hero. He was the first one out of the fourplex when it caught fire, before going back into the building to help others get out. Jade Jacobus, who also lived in the fourplex, told CTV News, Matt, he got out first, and we were both at the door, and I saw that look on Matt's face when he heard yelling, crying out for help. And Matt ran in there, and he didn't come. Jade believes Matthew was trying to save a seven-year-old boy who was trapped inside, who also perished in the fire. They could both hear him screaming. Jade tried to stop Matthew, telling him, You can't go up there. That's smoke. But Matthew went anyway. While his neighbor was inside trying to save people, Jade ran down the street, barefoot, banging on neighbors' doors to find someone to call 911. In total, five people died in the fire. There's a link in the show notes to a GoFundMe to support the victims. Police are looking for a man accused of kidnapping a 75-year-old woman and throwing her down a 4-meter, about 13-feet embankment in the snowy mountain region of New South Wales, Australia. He has a medium build, gray hair, and blue eyes. He was barefoot at the time of the incident. Anyone with information regarding this event is asked to contact Crime Stoppers. I really do hope they're able to find whoever did this to this poor woman. She sustained a lot of injuries, and that's not a lot to go on. I mean, it's Australia. Everybody's barefoot. That's all for today's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another interview, this time with Nikki of Ponyhouse Homeschool. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at sierrathebarefoot, on Facebook as sierrathebarefootgirl, on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. The podcast has a new Instagram at Barefooting with Sierra. All of my books are available on Amazon and my comics are available on Instagram at World of Possums and Patreon.com slash Possum Thank you to Legion X for the intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.